Hey, do you want to get smarter about impact investing? I'm assuming if you're here listening to this podcast, you probably do. So sign up at impactinvesting.how, that's H-O-W, to my distribution list. I send a lot of free resources around impact investing that go above and beyond the podcast. So I send a newsletter every one to two weeks, and that includes you know, heads up about any new episodes, what episodes are coming down the pipe in the future um, that I'm working on right now, access to interesting articles and thought leadership that I've stumbled across, uh, lists of articles and books that I happen to be reading right now and little discussions of those. Uh, event, uh, industry kind of events that are happening, invitations to live conversations. Increasingly, I want to get this to be a two-way exchange rather than me uh, recording podcasts only and distributing those to the world for you to listen. I would love for you to engage in a live conversation. So I'll be building out more and more resources on Clubhouse and potentially even Zoom video chats. And I'm actually, to that end, thinking about holding an Ask Me Anything on the first Friday of each month. I will probably try one on the first Friday of June. Uh, look for a, a newsletter and an email that inviting you to uh, participate in that where we can just connect with one another and open a dialogue between you and I, but also between each other. And so we can have ways we can collaborate, share ideas and advice. A couple of announcements before we get started. So Sarah Wolf is uh, the head of the Indigenous Innovation Initiative at Grand Challenges Canada and one of our previous podcast guests. The I3, as it's known, is co-hosting with the Circle of Abundance uh, at the Cody International Institute to host a summer virtual celebration on Tuesday, June 15th at 11 a.m. Eastern. And it's meant to celebrate and acknowledge, amplify, and tell the story of Indigenous innovation leadership in Canada. And it will also mark the launch of the Indigenous Innovation Initiative's Paddles Up fundraising campaign. So if you're interested in innovation in an indigenous context, please uh, check out that event. And I will send the, the link to that invite in the most recent newsletter. If you're not already signed up, don't worry. If you go to the impactinvesting.how website, click on sign up, you can access all the past newsletters as well. And lastly, Social Capital Partners is hiring right now. So you'll know them from episodes one, and I believe it was 25 with John Shell, where we talked about their work around employee ownership trusts as a way to get more employee-owned businesses where wealth creation happens and can get shared with the employees who help create that wealth at the companies they work for. And they are hiring right now for a director of policy and public affairs to help really grow employee ownership in Canada and help set new policy. The government in its latest budget expressed interest in employee ownership as a future avenue to explore. And so this timing just seems incredible in terms of being ripe for change. It comes with a high recommendation for me. The folks at Social Capital Partners are, are really brilliant. And if you haven't listened to those episodes with, with Bill Young in episode one and John Shell, I think in episode 25, uh, do yourself a favor and listen. And lastly, before we get started, please, please, please go leave a review. I really appreciate it. It helps us surface in the rankings and ratings so other people can find this podcast. And with that, let's get on to the podcast. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose 
and profit. Welcome to episode 31 of the Impact Investing Podcast. I've spent well over two decades working in the investment management industry, and for the vast majority of that time, ESG and responsible investing has toiled in obscurity and has been dismissed as the pursuit of impractical idealists. However, in recent years, we've reached a tipping point, and the industry is now racing to overhaul its marketing, if not its investment processes. These days, you'd be hard-pressed to find an investment manager that isn't claiming to at least be incorporating ESG considerations into its processes. And there are plenty of investment managers quick to claim to be doing impact investing. The trouble is, there's a big difference between making investments that have an impact, after all, all investments have some impact, and doing legitimate impact investing. And the reason so few large money managers are doing real impact investing is because it's harder, more time-consuming, often offers less liquidity, and doesn't have the necessary scale for large institutional money managers to play in it. In this episode of the podcast, I sit down with Andrew Perry, head of sustainable investing at Newton Investment Management, based out of London, UK. With roughly $60 billion in assets under management, Newton is a boutique investment management business that is one of eight asset managers owned by Bank of New York Mellon Investment Management. Under Andrew's leadership, the firm has put responsible and impact investing at the heart of its philosophy and approach. Andrew has spent his career in investment management across a variety of respected asset managers, including Hermes, Lazard Brothers, Julius Baer, and Bearing Asset Management. Andrew is also a member of the CFA UK's Committee for Diversity and Inclusion. During the episode, we discuss how Andrew sees ESG investing versus impact investing, how he weaves an SDG focus into the firm's investment process and product creation, the change in demand for responsible investment in recent years, and why he views every business as a de facto social enterprise. We also get into the age-old debate of whether responsible investing leads to lower future returns. And be sure to stay tuned to the very end, where Andrew discusses his outlook for the investment industry and where it's headed over the next decade. With that, let's get on to the podcast. So, Andrew, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, David. Yeah, I, I appreciate you you joining. I stumbled across uh, your work actually through a mutual contact on LinkedIn and some of the comments that you'd made and started to learn a little bit more about your background. And I thought it'd be really interesting to have you on to, to chat about the world of obviously investing for impact in a maybe a bit more of a broad sense than we typically do in on the Impact Investing podcast. But really dive into that intersection, the differences in the intersection between ESG investing, socially responsible investing, impact investing, this sort of soup of terms that we hear out there and hear about it from the perspective of somebody who's spent their life in investment management at a, at a high level in the institutional space and uh, some of the challenges and opportunities there. I'm excited to have the conversation. Welcome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's a great, it's a great topic to be discussing and very timely. We're at the start of potentially a, a new era with President Biden being inaugurated today. Yeah, that's yes, exactly. We've got a, an interesting backdrop going on during this conversation. Andrew, maybe you could just start in and on your own words, just introduce the, the audience to who you are and, and what you're working on. Yeah, so... 
Hello everybody out there, I'm Andrew Parry. I'm Head of Sustainable Investment at Newton Investment Management. We are a subsidiary company of BMY Mellon, so uh, a very large organisation. I've been in the investment industry now for gosh, 35 years, so I guess that counts now as I'm a veteran of the investment world. I've been on a journey, uh, my own personal journey from you know traditional investment, which still is my dominant area towards this awareness of originally ESG and responsible in investing and impact came, came much later on. And, and I have to admit, through the lens of initially the more public markets, but it, I found it really fascinating. And as the more you understood the rich history and purpose of impact investing, the more I found it being a great addition to to the way that I thought about investment and, and the opportunities that it represented. I've also had the the you know the good fortune in that to co-chair the UNFF, UNFFI positive impact initiative for a while. So very much looking at impact through the lens of business models. And this involvement in impact and sustainable has brought me in contact with a whole range of really fascinating people from NGOs, from uh, academia, from social enterprises, as well as from the large companies who are beginning to use some of this thinking in their practices, perhaps maybe not enough, but they are on their own journey. So for me, it's been just a fascinating learning curve. Part of the reason why I'm still doing it, I'm, I keep learning about it so many new things. That's great. Hopefully I'll learn a bit more from you today, David. Yeah, it is interesting. Every time I get into conversations, you hear another perspective and somebody brings a new wrinkle and sometimes a lot of new wrinkles. And and I think that's what I love about this space. And to your point, I, the investment industry is certainly fascinating. It's dynamic. The markets are always changing. And I think that's what attracts a lot of people to it and why they can spend an entire career doing it and not ever get bored of it. But Adding in the, certainly for me anyway, this is my personal bias, but the social and I think the environmental, obviously, components to it, just it, it, it almost takes it from, and I don't want to be overly reductive because investing is certainly not not easy, but it adds an, you know, an entire new dimension and arguably a couple new dimensions. And especially on the social side, it's so, you know, human beings are so complex. And so thinking about impact and trying to understand all that, that and wrestle with it, measure it, <laughs> improve, you know, manage it is such a fascinating, complex field that it just, it feels like it adds an overwhelming, sometimes it feels overwhelming, but it's exciting and interesting. And obviously I think the, the moral imperative that we all have, I think requires us to, to think about it. Yeah. No, I, I think one thing that I found on, on that sort of thinking was that it, it reminded me that, you know, that all companies are de facto social enterprises and with that concept of being an embedded part of society here comes the notion of that brings broader responsibilities particularly for large organizations and that no, that notion Rousseau's social contract was something maybe over the last 40 years that we've begun to see diluted but was an important element in my thinking and recognizing that, that we in the investment world have a broader role that goes beyond just making money. And I'm not knocking making money because it is a very important element in allowing our clients to meet their savings and their retirement needs. 
that they want to as well retire into a, a healthy and vibrant world yeah and to leave one behind for their children and grandchildren yeah yeah exactly can you talk a little bit about uh, what struck me about your work at Newton in particular was that you know, it did have this sort of broader focus on impact beyond just e- ESG integration and I don't I don't mean to say just ESG integration but it can be done in its sort of most reductive capacity as a set of just screens and filters and patched on to an existing investment process that doesn't inherently factor in these types of issues. And then it can be fully integrated into, woven into the fabric of how a firm goes about approaching the investment uh, research and selection process. And Newton, it just seemed to me that your perspective and, and, and approach there had a more holistic sense of that and more integrated aspect. Can you talk about how at Newton you think about your, I noted your title as sustainability in in the term. Can you talk about how you think about impact and weave that into the investment process? Yeah. Our industry is littered with all sorts of terms, acronyms, synonyms. And sometimes I joke that the only good thing they they can be used for is a game of Scrabble. But uh, (laughs) and I do think it's a danger of every industry of getting hung up and hiding behind our, our jargon. Even ESG, we've immediately fallen into the trap of saying ESG rather than environmental, social and governance considerations. You know, I think you know, it's steeped in this stuff. We always think that everybody outside our, our bubble knows what we're talking about, but quite often ESG doesn't really resonate with them. So it's one of the first rules I say to people is always break it down into what it really is, these environmental, social and governance considerations. And very much my viewpoint is that ESG is an input. Sustainable investment is is about outcomes and impact is about consequences. And I think that's the sort of uh, continuum that I, I, I look at. So all companies and all countries, there are complex, nuanced, environmental, social and governance considerations that vary across industry, across region, will will vary across time. So I really don't think of them as a set of labels, rankings or ratings, but the these complex series of information and insights that can help you have the complete picture of understanding an investment opportunity. So it's, it's less about why you should do ESG, it's why the heck you wouldn't. Because if you don't have the complete picture in making your financial assessment, sustainable then goes further. And one thing I I try to always get across is that sustainability is not something, a state that we have achieved today. It's about a journey into the future. It's something that we wish to attain in the future. So it's a future state of, of well-being that we have yet to attain. And, you know, therefore it's about thinking about how sustainability considerations are woven into the business model. So either through the products and services, so what solutions are they tackling, or through the business practices and operations so that they can maybe take those solutions to reduce environmental or social uh, harm and to actually build resilience into their business model and, and potentially relevance as well as social norms change. And then at the impact end, it really is about that focusing on companies with solutions to the most pressing social and environmental needs of the global economy. 
if I'm being pedantic, and I often am because it's my nature, I, I always feel that in, in many ways in the public markets, which is the world that I dominate, I'd always want to call it impactful investment because we are investing in a second order effect. We're buying the shares of companies whose capital, whose purpose already exists. So while we may be able to influence their outcomes and their behaviours through engagement, in many ways, their purpose is already set. So we're looking at what they're, they're doing rather than bringing the impact ourselves. But, but, but why I think the thinking about impact is so important is that recognizing where impact came from, really originally from philanthropy and then the Rockefeller Foundation way back in 2007, thinking about how you could scale the positive impact on people's lives or on the environment through bringing some form of financial discipline, not a market rate of return necessarily, but a discipline that would give greater duration and scale. The great advantage of the public markets is while they might not have the intensity of philanthropy or that more traditional form of impact first type of investing, you think of the the global markets, well, they touch every sector, every country around the world. And they have a significant impact both positively and negatively on the world around us, on society, on the environment, economic activity. So while the intensity of any positives they might have is less than philanthropy, when you multiply it out by the other dimensions of breadth, scale and importantly duration, we have to see that the role of the traditional corporation can have a significant influence on generating the benefits that that we all want to see uh, socially and environmentally. And indeed, if they're not tackling the negatives, all the good that we do in the traditional impact or philanthropy space could be undone, climate change being a classic example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think that's a very interesting point in terms of kind of thinking about the magnitude of the impact and comparing obviously philanthropy and and investing. I think it's interesting to think about as well that these aren't, I think the world has traditionally thought of these things as just separate, discrete, independent activities. And I think it's interesting to think, and I think we're starting to see this in the foundation space in particular, a recognition that investing in philanthropy are not necessarily discrete activities, but on a different end of a same spectrum where you're trading off some sort of financial return for impact. And with philanthropy, you guarantee yourself 100% financial loss, but arguably gain a certain level of impact. And on the investment side, you have got a range of risk return profiles, but the, the key variable there is that you are generating some sort of at least return of capital and something beyond that to compensate you for the risk, but arguably, you know, less impact. And to the point you just made, sure that we have to factor in the the magnitude, the duration, and scale, but but and then everything in between is I think where is an interesting ripe area for exploration, potentially concessional capital, where you're, hey, I just need the money back, but I don't need a rate of return. Is sitting at that maybe that middle ground between a market rate investment and philanthropy, and so um, thinking then about what problem are we trying to solve, what impact are we trying to have, and what's the best form of capital 
to utilize. And in particular, I think there's like the opportunity impact investing lies, which is, hey, let's solve all the problems we can that we're, where the solution can be profited from using investment capital. And then let's save all our philanthropic dollars because they're really precious <laughs> and more scarce for the really intractable problems there where the solution, there's no kind of profit or economic um, return possible. I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah, I was just going to say that I think impact investing has probably been one of the most creative areas of finance in the last decade or, or longer now. And, and I think the more that people get exposed to it, the more that people think about it, the more that they find that there can be some very creative ways of tackling problems or making a return while tackling problems. And the the approach has actually evolved quite a lot because it, I think even five years ago, it tended to be quite black and white. You are either in the concessionary end or you're at market-based returns. And I'm never quite sure what a market-based return is because it depends on which market you're operating in. So if you're operating in public equities where you're probably going to be finding impactful solutions, the companies are providing impactful solutions, you're not actually providing the additional capital to provide those solutions, then it has to be a market rate of return. But the good news is that taps you into companies normally with superior growth prospects, normally more resilient margins and longer term time horizons. So that's very good. Where I found the last five years has really opened up the space is in is outside of public equities and indeed a you know, listed credit, but in this sort of growing area of private market investment where you do get all different gradations of risk adjusted returns. And surprisingly, quantitative easing and the collapse in bond yields has been really very helpful in that. Because if you think about it, when your risk-free rate of return, government bonds, short duration cash, has virtually no return, then that opens up a huge vista for well-constructed social impact or environmental impact projects, where maybe five years ago, people would be expecting a double digit rate of return. Now, if they're constructed with good risk profiles, many people will be able to invest at three, four, five, six percent. And, and so I think that's really helped accelerate that social end of the impact capital allocation in particular. It's really opened up new opportunities. And that's why having innovative financial structures, whether whether it's mezzanine capital, the equity tranche, so that you can bring different risk takers into the proposition who are able to you know, absorb different levels of risk or take different levels of return expectations. And for me, that's been one of the surprise consequences of, of quantitative easing and all the other strange things that it's led to. Yeah, that's a really great point. I often think to myself when I speak to advisor groups about this stuff, talk about that as aside from the, I think the moral imperative and the fact that clients now are increasingly demanding and wanting to see impact in their portfolios, the there's just a really great yield opportunity. And if we're in a zero interest rate environment and low yield environment, clients, a whole whack of clients need to generate some income and yield, then you're going to have to find that somewhere for that portion of the portfolio. And so I, I, it makes me wonder how advisors can continue to ignore it. And I know that 
the private markets often present some challenges just logistically. It's sometimes more difficult to access them depending on, as an advisor, the platform you sit on and your licensing registration. The private markets, I think, often are labeled as risky and dangerous, sometimes sometimes unfairly. There's certainly less liquidity there, but you know, I think the public markets are just as mixed a bag of, of quality sometimes. But, but it, it really is an interesting yield opportunity. And so I, it just makes me wonder increasingly whether advisors have a fiduciary obligation to start at least considering it uh, for their client portfolios. And, and so it just seems like there's a lot of motivation. There's a lot of factors that should encourage brokers, advisors, and asset managers to look at that space. As a manager of at the kind of an institutional equity manager, what do you, how do you approach that? Do you have limitations? Do you include private securities in your portfolios? I'm sure it depends on the portfolio, but I'd just be curious for your perspective on how you think about that. Yeah, so it is one of the challenges that that, you know, that we are looking to address because working across all of our strategies, largely in the you know, enlisted securities, getting access to private markets, mixing the two can be quite difficult, particularly in a sort of fund structure with daily liquidity. Then you have a mismatch of liquidity, and that can be a bit of an issue for you know, for managing flows, but also from a regulatory perspective. I think where we have seen a lot of a lot more solutions turning up is people using closed end structures, particularly for areas like renewable energy. So whether by wind farms or solar farms and things like that, where to your point, David, about yield, where the yields have been very attractive and we've undoubtedly you know, we've invested in a lot of those sort of areas where we get good yields and great capital performance as well. But we we have them within listed vehicles and because they've been it's a growing and successful area they've been able to keep discounts narrow and raise fresh capital we're beginning to see in using that sort of thinking and because of the success of the renewables industry opportunities arise in things like social housing or more diversified impact products and that is one way around it is to package them up in a listed investment company. And as long as you can then manage as the investment sponsor any discount, those can be quite appealing and they're a good way for us to get get access to those sort of investments. And we undoubtedly want to do more. Now, if I put my pension fund hat on, where you have long-term pools of capital, I think, we're beginning again there to see people on trustee boards begin to lose their anxiety about impact investing, partly because of the the rate of return issue. It's now become much more acceptable. It used to be people wouldn't get out of the bed out of bed for anything less than a fifteen percent return. Where rates are does you know, change the dynamics of that discussion. We're beginning to see much more, for example, in the UK ESG. being an embedded part of pension fund legislation that's going to be coming up quite soon so people are beginning to be educated about there is a a greater breadth of opportunity and and in many ways if you think about sustainable and impact they can represent really interesting structural long-term opportunities either for growth for solving problems where it can be more commercialized or solving social problems where you can get an attractive yield. So they are beginning to push into this area. I think the big challenge for pension funds is scale. 
because as many say social housing projects, they might be looking to raise fifty to a hundred million dollars. And that's a huge fortune for the people's lives it's affecting. It's a massive commitment. But for a pension fund, if you've got tens of billions of dollars, it's a very small amount of money. And that's where the challenge is. So I think sometimes that's one of the limiting factors for impact for big institutions is actually how do you scale it up without having thousands and thousands of very small investments, which then become difficult to administer. Okay, this is going to be a different kind of ad. I've played a personal role in selecting this sponsor because they're passionately working on making an impact. Today, we're going behind the scenes with a British Columbia-based social enterprise called Genies. I can tell you firsthand, when we came to Israel as a family of five, no jobs, of course, a different language from Russian to Hebrew, small kids, I was four. The first night that we got in, a neighbor saw that a family came in and she basically gave us like tea with some sweets, things that she had prepared. And these moments created so much joy and stress relief for my mom specifically, where she could, okay, somebody help me feed my kids in a moment where I was really stressed about how do I do that. That's Libby Berenson co-founder and CEO of Genies, describing the difficult experience her family had moving from Russia to Israel when she was a child. And it was experiences like this that would spark the passion in Libby to create a social enterprise in the business of granting wishes for families in need. Always giving back to the community was a part of me, so creating Genies was really a way for me to apply my skills and experiences into combining that with my values and things that I'm passionate about. The trick, though, for Libby was to find a way to enable caring Canadians to grant wishes in a way that was financially sustainable, scalable, and secure. In Libby's words, Genies is basically a social gifting technology platform that facilitates gifting for families in need. We integrate with different retailers to be able to show their products and services in the app for families to list and donors to give. Families can list different types of items. They can list products, secondhand products, electronic gift cards for groceries, and even dental services. And services can be later on, it can be eyewear, it can be in the future education, career coaching, it could be different other services that we can really grow with that side. We're working with nonprofit organizations. They're the ones vetting and choosing these families. Families want to receive anonymously. Remaining anonymous is super, super important. The impact on the lives of real people, real families, sometimes those living on our own streets and in our own communities, can be transformational. Libby recalls the story of a woman who was used to wearing secondhand coats that never quite fit right, who got to enjoy a privilege that many of us never think twice about. She received a new coat. And so she received that coat that she really wanted from a donor on Genie's. She was so proud of it. Her confidence went so high and up. And that was a little bit before COVID. So people could meet face to face. So for her, it was such an important part of her confidence and self-esteem. She was so proud and showing off her new code. Imagine the opportunity and how she will feel when she goes and, and, and tries for a job interview or in front of her kids or her friends. She felt so proud and that. With the platform built and the idea validated, Libby and her team now spend their time and 
focus on growing the business. Genie is used as an affiliate business model where retailers pay Genies for each product or service that are gifted to families in need. This revenue allows Genies to expand their relationship with more nonprofits to reach more families in need. But to accelerate this growth, Genies needs to raise additional financing. We chose equity crowdfunding because of the opportunity to engage the community. You need to have the funding behind it to make sure that your your impact is seen and uh, it's affecting more and more people. Crowdfunding helps democratize access to impact investing. In the case of Genies, it allows them to accept an investment as small as $250 without requiring investors be accredited, a restriction that normally prevents ordinary Canadians from becoming co-owners of impact businesses and participating in their financial success. You can invest a minimum of $250 up to $1 million, and investors in BC are actually eligible for even 30% tax credit with an investment of over $3,000. Visit frontfunder.com genies to learn more about how you can be a part of this impactful process of social gifting. That's frontfunder, F-R-O-N-T-F-U-N-D-R dot com slash G-E-E-N-E-E-S. So I have a few questions I want to get to, and I'm going to try to keep them all in my head here. One, just on that point, we've been talking about how impact investments are primarily happening in the private markets. It, it feels, it seems to me that's really just a function of the maturity of the market and the how long and how old it is. And that it just is the case that a lot of these true social enterprises and impact investment structures are relatively new and at smaller scale. And so they, many of them haven't had the opportunity to get to the size where they would need to access capital from the public markets. Do you think that we're going to, it feels to me like we're going to get to a point in time in the future where there are a lot of publicly traded true social enterprises. And so that then this distinction between the public and private markets and impact versus ESG will not happen along those private public market lines. Do you, do you think that's fair? Or do you think there's something innate about impact that will lead it to stay private? No, I don't think there needs to be anything innate in impact that keeps it closeted away in the private world. There is another factor at work, and it goes back to our old friend, these these ultra-low interest rates. One of the, the big trends that we've seen, gosh, maybe over, de- over decades now, is the reduction in the number of publicly listed companies. And what we've also what we're also finding is large corporations are often buying up these smaller, more impactful businesses to inject them into their own businesses. So many of these enterprises don't get the chance to come to the public market or in this world of increased financing, they feel they don't need to come to the market. They can get a good access to debt capital or private capital. And that that is one of the you know, the considerations is that they too few of them are coming to the market. It's, it's quite frustrating. And having launched the public market equity fund just four years ago, you know that was one of our hope that we'd see more and more impactful companies come to the market. But there have been very few, and that is that is a challenge that 
if with a if the economics of the finance system mean that it's cheaper to buy growth than to develop it, we'll often see larger companies taking advantage of cheap financing to to buy buy some of these uh, smaller enterprises. I'm still, if anything, starved of a good breadth of small and mid-sized impact ideas. Improving, yes, but not at the rate I would have ideally liked. Yeah, I, I, I agreed. It does. It does. Uh, the scale certainly is an issue and one that hopefully alleviates over time, but it's yes, for the foreseeable future was probably a challenge. I, I want a couple discuss a couple of related, one related and then maybe one less related thing. Thinking about, again, this impetus for more and more managers to look at the private markets at impact investments, and we talked about the yield opportunity. It also strikes me that the, there's a bit of a ta- time-bound opportunity. Maybe it's not time-bound, but it feels like there there may be a limit on it where we have the whole kind of world of blended finance, which has taken shape around, and particularly governments or other kind of philanthropic donors who want to help de-risk investments to encourage and catalyze investment capital into impact investments. And so to the extent you have an appetite from governments that are trying to encourage investors into the market, there, there does feel like this window of time where you have a free lunch, so to speak. If you can buy a private debt instrument that has X number of dollars of first loss capital behind it to cover any investment losses and you're getting a 3% or 4% rate of return, you're effectively getting a potentially a risk-free rate of return that, you know, and that, that opportunity won't last forever. Presumably, if the market shift and everyone is impact investing readily and happily, then governments won't necessarily have a need to do that anymore or, or other philanthropic donors. And so you have this window of opportunity where it feels like there's real alpha opportunity. Do you think that's fair or is that something you're thinking about or looking at? No, it's certainly something that I, I've written about. And I do, I, I agree with you, David, that we have this one, that we are at this point in time, sadly, because of COVID and the crisis it's brought and probably a sea change in attitude on many governments around the world of recognising, whether they're of the left or the right, that they have to get involved in the economy in a much more direct way and find a way of accelerating the, the recovery and, to, and you know, to manage the social consequences. So if there is a silver lining to the challenges of the COVID crisis, it's that recognition that we're all in this together and that government dogma of not investing in the broader social economy has gone out of the window. (laughs) They've had no choice just to keep economic activity going. Now, and some of that thinking you can see in the EU sustainable taxonomy and the support that across the EU, that in, in Britain, Biden's talked about it as well, that we can use this as an opportunity for public-private partnership, which, to be fair, in the past hasn't always worked well. But at this point in time, there is an alignment of interest where private, the private sector and the public sector can come together in a far more constructive manner. Look at what's happened with renewables around the world. Increasingly, renewable energy is not reliant on subsidies, It's be, it, but it's got to that point by historic subsidies and intervention of governments to create the scale. And now that scale is beginning to uh, see an acceleration through economics, the economics of the renewable 
sector combined with technology and material science advances is shifting the dynamic there dramatically. Uh, and I think that is a it, it, can, it can be a good a good role model for potentially more more social areas and shows that we can tackle some of these big issues and we can deliver change at scale if we have a mind to it and if when after a massive human crisis the covid crisis you, if you can't do it then you're never going to do it yeah i think you are right this is a, a point in time where that blended finance model could really begin to work do you think there's risk then that like the the renew i like the corollary to the kind of renewables what happened there do you do you think there's some risk that the market comes to sort of depend or expect associate making impact investments with needing some sort of government subsidy to reduce, in this case, reduce the risk and provide some sort of guarantees. And that when that eventually starts to get withdrawn, that the the demand dies away. And I think the the hope would be that we we normalize it and get investors familiar with it, that they, once the subsidies go away, that they still continue to do it. But potentially it doesn't work out that way. It, you made a point early on in the in our conversation that it, it varies across industry and opportunity. Now, there are certain areas that will probably always require philanthropy and no return of capital and, and governments can be involved in those areas. Now, it's because sometimes it's about poor accounting, isn't it? That there is definitely, say, a social benefit with a real economic benefit behind it but where does that benefit accrue is the challenge and how do you value it so look i I, there isn't one solution to that fits all for the for opportunities but i have seen some really interesting models i was talking to somebody last year about where they were financing local activities in communities where say it was provision of preschool care for children and because of there was a lack of good places there was a lack of certainly state provided places but they found that people would invest and for a very low rate of return if they saw a localized social benefit and when when i mean low rate of return i'm like talking about half to one percent slightly cash type returns or even you know slightly cash plus and it was really fascinating listening to her talk about that, that in where you saw the tangible benefit in your community, even if you your children were grown up and you weren't going to benefit yourself, then the rate of return was far less important than actually the benefit that you could perceive. So some of this is about how do we use that sort of learning to do it in different areas and on scale and about communicating what you're doing. And that's where governments can be much more creative because they can recognize that accounting benefit to, that it's seen in the in society, but where there's not necessarily an automatic cash benefit because that's part of you know, the role of government to make society function well. Yeah, I think that I'm optimistic. I'm, I'm seeing more really interesting things going on around me and I'm beginning to see more and more people talking about them and especially younger generations yeah yeah that's that's really interesting I think to some extent there's where social impact bonds are trying to unlock some of that where you've got some sort of real economic 
benefit to the to society at, at writ large and in a way to potentially save a lot of government funding. So if you reduce recidivism rates or you reduce the burden on you know the healthcare system, there's a savings to the government so that they can have the funds to essentially pay a return for the investor to take on the risk of trying maybe these novel interventions that, you know, and paying it only if there's a, if that benefit is unlocked. And so it's interesting. I also think giving rise to the idea of place-based impact investing in this, I think the point, the psychological component you're bringing up that the closer it feels to us, the more we can relate to the people being impacted by it. That just pulls on our heartstrings more and makes us more likely to want to more motivated to do it, I think is really, really interesting. It's a related conversation I had earlier today with a good friend of mine who's been working on the future of food in Wales. I come mm. from Wales. And one of the conversations that I had there was one of the a deputy chief executive of one of the regional health boards within Wales. And we were talking about the, they're building a new hospital. One of the things I said to him is that one of the things you want to do is try and find ways of slowing the flow of people into your hospital. When I was at school, um, we were ta- taught home economics, how to cook and eat well on a budget. And he would say, well, that's really interesting because 10, something like 10% of their budget was going on diabetes, which was linked to obesity. And now that my friend reflected back that he's actually factoring that now into their budgeting to think how they can use prevention as a way of saving money in the health service in, in, in Wales and, and elsewhere. It just shows you, is that a form of impact investing? I'm not <laughs> sure it is, but the $2 billion pounds they're going to be spending on this hospital, they really do need to think about how can they lessen the burden on preventable and avoidable diseases as, and then give them time to treat the, those diseases that can't be uh, avoided. Yeah, yeah, I love that. It just seems to me one of the healthy, wherever you end up falling in all of this equation, what I think is really healthy about this move towards ESG and impact and thinking about these things is take, bringing all these external, the externalities back into the fold and realizing that we threw them aside because it was easier for our you know, thinking and our models to, to exclude them and they are very difficult to quantify. But wait a minute, the, the, these impacts are happening, whether we, we were just not measuring them, they haven't gone away. And so how do we start to bring more and more of those back into the equation so that we're recognizing the full cost and the full benefits of, or full costs and benefits of what's happening as we're transacting or going about business? Um, Negative externalities are really an important concept in the public year markets because they, they historically they always felt you could ignore them, but you can't. They, they represent a potential risk that will become an in, internalized in, in, into business models. And so they represent a risk to the financial returns. The time horizon of, of which it may be uncertain, but if you're a long-term investor, ignoring negative externalities is a big mistake. That it is increasingly important to factor those in to even in traditional investment and to consider what potential risks they could bring to bear when you, you will least need them. Yeah, it seems to me that the market tends to traditional investors, the thinking, traditional thinking is these non-diversifiable risks, these systemic risks are, we can't diversify them away and we don't have control over them. 
And so that's just a, this necessary risk you're going to take in the process of investing. And those negative externalities, I think I like what you say about it's a time horizon issue. In the long run, they do have a, they obviously, you know, are a risk to our portfolio. They have an impact, even though we may not be quantifying them and removing them from our models. On the other hand, I, it feels to me like we do, it, we actually do have a way to mitigate them. And so by, you know, treating people more fairly and paying fairer wages and caring about whatever the mechanism is, caring more about the impact that businesses have on the planet and people can help mitigate those long-term non-diversifiable risks. And so instead of having this defeatist attitude towards, well, there's nothing we can do about it. I think the impact investing and ESG investing does present a way for us to, to mitigate some of those things. And so we should be factoring that into the equation. No, I fully agree. And I, I, I use for our definition on sustainable investment, the Brundtland, our common future definition of sustainable you know, development about not meeting the needs of today without taking away the ability of future generations to meet their own needs mm -hmm. and then guaranteeing balance between economic growth and social and environmental well-being. And I think that's just a lovely sentence for summing up what the aspirations of sustainable investment should be about. And it's about that key word about balance, and it is about achieving balance. Because none of us want to retire into a dystopian wilderness, something out of a sci-fi movie. And the more that we can make sure that we have a healthy and well-functioning environment, uh, a society that's well ba balanced with opportunities to participate in, in economic well-being for, for the majority, then the more that, that we're going to be able to sustain economic health and the financial returns that will allow us to retire well financially. So I think there is a, a feedback loop as long as you have that right time horizon and you, you have a recognition it's not just about the self and now, but it is about a journey into the future. And for me, that's what you know, keeps me still excited about investments and through a sustainable lens. It doesn't narrow my opportunity set. It opens it up because it's it trying to focus on where the world's going to avoid stranded assets, stranded business model, bad actors, and to invest in, in optimism, in, in future trends and opportunities of emerging areas and if you think of sustainable in that lens as a journey into the future then you know it's an exciting way of investing and it, and also with the advantage of taking you away from the index which should never be your baseline for risk your baseline for risks of what is that the companies are actually doing and they and, and how relevant they will remain in the changing world yeah yeah which i think is not necessarily all that common or or the flip side of that is is pretty common using the benchmark as your <laughs> measure of risk yeah you think of you know benchmark can actually be a very risky proposition it's 30 percent of the european uh, equity index in two, beginning of 2008 was in financials hmm, that was quite a risky proposition over 40 percent in global indices was probably in the tmt sector in, in january 2000 that was a very risky proposition. I think it's that notion that the index represents a baseline of risk is very distorting on your behaviors. 
and ultimately not good if you want to be an active investor. Active investment is about embracing tomorrow's great ideas that you can buy today and embracing change and the entropy of markets. You, you have to recognize that things are born, things that die. That's part of the, the evolution of ideas. And for me, that's just a natural part of the way of, I think about investment and why sustainable and impact I found additive to that worldview for investments because they really honed your thinking about this future direction of travel. Yeah, I, I, to your point about the indexes sometimes being risky themselves, I'm old enough to have invested in the Canadian markets when two or three stocks, Nortel and Research in Motion, made up 20 to 30% of the entire, two, two or three stocks made up 20, 30% of our entire index in the tech bubble in the late 90s. They can be, you know, and then that led to the whole birth of having the capped version of the indexes where individual stocks and sectors could only account for a maximum percentage. Yeah, it's a uh, well, point well made. So a couple, I want to be conscious of time here, but I want to maybe address a couple more things. Just before we leave the, or to circle back to the blended finance, I'm just curious for what you think about this. I haven't heard a lot of people talking about it, but the if blended finance is primarily about how do we motivate and encourage private investment capital into these impact solutions? And if one of the main barriers is they're seen as risky, and so investors don't believe they're being you know fairly compensated for the risks, we need to de-risk them in order to motivate and encourage those investors in. Well, it seems to me one of the other hurdles to entering is, and I think there's probably three primary hurdles. One is the, the view of the perception of risk. The other, as you mentioned, is scale and just the size of the opportunities, especially for large institutional managers. They just can't deploy enough capital in that market. It's not mature enough yet. And that one, I think, is a harder problem to solve. But liquidity is the other one that I think prop pops up, especially, as you mentioned, as a depending on the structure and the investors in your your funds. I'm wondering about whether you'd see it as, a, as an investment manager as valuable if, you know, the public sector and philanthropic donors use their capital instead of de-risk an investment to add liquidity and using their capital for that purpose. Do you see any kind of value or hear anybody talking about that? No, I haven't. To be honest, I haven't heard many people talking about you know, being a provider of liquidity. I think where, so I haven't got a ready answer to, to, to that one. I think some of the challenges with that will be is that typically when everything's going well, liquidity doesn't matter. When things go get tougher, then liquidity does. And then maybe that's when a government or a philanthropic entity standing behind a situation might then be criticised for providing liquidity almost at the wrong time of an economic cycle and that they're, they're, they're going to almost sort of be guaranteed of having... Uh, Yes, a negative publicity about that because they're exposing themselves to potential loss. It is one of the big challenges is, you know, trying to ensure that there's a strong business model as well behind it. And that so because you don't want to be providing the liquidity to allow 
the pub, you know, the the private sector an exit in a bad situation. That, right. you know, that, that you know, because if you just then end, end, end up owning losses and nothing else, that can be a problem. I do think it's not just about first loss and things like that. I think there, we can be a bit more creative around incentives. It's always look at. I can remember a central banker telling me always look at the incentives in the system if you want to see if the system works well. <laughs> it's always a problem with the Paris. Uh, um, agreement was that there were no incentives to to meet the agreement because there were no penalties. You can't, it's, it's always important to to make sure that you think about how do you incentivize behaviour to to go in the direction you you want, and, and sometimes that can be taxation in opportunities. You know, sometimes it can be subsidy, sometimes it can be first loss. Sometimes it can be borrowing facilities. There are many, there are a myriad of different ways of thinking about it, or it can be removing incentives from parts of the economy where there are you know, negative externalities associated with them. We need to keep open as many different avenues as possible to try and encourage and nurture you know, growth in these areas. What, what do you see as the the most important things that can be done to nurture this continued interest and expansion of investors deploying money that either across the ESG, but also increasingly into the impact space. Is it, does it sit with like, where do you think those kind of bottlenecks are? Is it just investor appetite? Is it, you know, sitting with advisors who need to be speaking to their clients or capable of delivering the solution to the manufacturer? Do we just need more products? We're like, how do you see the the yeah those bottlenecks and restrictions? Yeah, so I think the, the the bottlenecks and restrictions are different in different parts of of the market. So at the more impactful end, particularly into private markets, we have the problems of access for for the more what we call the mass affluent, so people without tens of millions of dollars to invest, more more modest, and how do you get access? To these more impactful private market opportunities and making sure that we don't that regulators support and help access to that and we can find good structures for people to invest in these opportunities in a in a well governed well regulated way i think that's an important area one would say that in esg you know there are probably no impediments given that everybody does esg everybody's talking about esg i, I think there you know, it's just making sure it's authentic and it's not about labels and rankings and scores. As I said at the beginning, ESG isn't a thing. It isn't something tangible that you can hold. So I will say ESG is not a label, it's Finance 101. This is complex series of environmental, social and governance inputs. Now, when we talk to companies, I mean, sometimes we get asked by companies to advise them on ESG practice. That if they start the conversation with how do we optimize our ESG score, then you know that they haven't got it. And and I do think the future of ESG is almost that it dies because it is just something that we should all be doing and is just naturally part of the the business approach. And I think that is where I'm I'm more and more encouraged that we do see companies want to know how they can do things better. Private equity firms want to know how they use this as a lens to do things better. And if you think about it through the lens of it's about what the companies are doing, not just what they're reporting, 
we need to make sure that we don't fall into the trap that it's just about a reporting, but it's about the allocation of capitals, natural, human, social, relationship, intellectual, as well as financial. And so I think the movement that we're now seeing for better agreed statutory reporting of ESG matters is, is, could help. And where investors you know, can really make sure that they drive, drive this is through the process of their, their interactions, their engagements with companies. Because the more that we can show that we really care about these matters and that these are issues that we take seriously and will change our purchase and sale decisions, the more that I think it will change corporate behaviour. And often we've had conversations with management where we've encouraged them, say, on things on diversity or various areas where the, the management actually are quite surprised that we, we raised it as an issue about helping support their long-term financial strategy because we can see the benefits over the long-term and staff retention and things like that as well as the, the social benefits. And, and sometimes that gives them you know, the, the competence to do more. So it's, so it's a, a, the ability to have the right conversation. And where I find that is helped is that it shouldn't just be the responsibility of an engagement or stewardship team on their own, disconnected from the investment process, where you can make the re, really the most telling changes, I think, in terms of influencing company behavior. It's when the analysts and the portfolio managers, as well as the responsible investing analyst, are talking about it. And why are the portfolio managers and analysts so important in the engagement? Because they allocate capital. And that's suddenly when they, the, the CEO, the CFO and the chair suddenly take note. Because quite often you, in the past, you've had this disconnect with somebody who's just focusing on doing stewardship but has no power of purchase or sale, who's not involved directly in the purchase. When you bring the PM in, when you bring the analyst in, then it changes the dynamic very considerably because then it shows that you care throughout the whole value chain of the organization. Yeah, it's interesting. I was uh, part of a conversation last night with a group of people from a variety of different sort of sophistication levels talking about how you start to do sustainable and impact investing. And there was a participant there who was a, an employee in a CSR you know, role at an airline and uh, talked about how they had been there for years, her team, talking about the need for sustainability and for all these things that, you know, the recommendations that they've been making over the years. And it was just an exercise a lot of times in futility in terms of getting the time, attention and resources to acting on the recommendations. And in what was maybe in their case a year ago where the level of shareholder activism engagement that the senior leadership was experiencing caught their, you know, finally caught their attention. And all of a sudden a flip switched and they were you know incredibly resourced. And so I think you know, it's just the more that people all throughout the value chain here, recognize their role and the influence that they have, I think is really valuable. And so that comes to consumers, to investors, and within investors, the, the ultimate end retail investor, all the way to the portfolio managers and analysts. And I think it's just, it's just such an important part of the equation if we're going to actually get any meaningful change. 
It is. It's interesting to hear that. I've heard that sort of comment before. I've talked to heads of sustainability and they said, you're the only investor who seems to be interested in what we're doing with the SDGs, even though loads of investors are plastering them all over their reports. You don't want it to have, ideally, you don't want it having these two routes into the company. You don't want an RI analyst or sustainable person talking to head of sustainability or or IR, the investor relations about a particular topic, and then the PM and analyst having a completely different conversation where they never ask about it, because then the CEO is never going to get the, take seriously the importance of these topics. And it's always good to ask a head of sustainable, sustainability at a corporation who they report to. And if they report to their head of HR, then you know, yeah, their recommendations are probably not going to get listened to if they report to the finance director or to the CEO or indeed on the executive or board. Then it's a very different proposition, and it's and it's very simple things like that sometimes that can help drive the intent. You know, we often say to CEOs, ask the CEO who the, the head of sustainable sustainability is, and if they look at the IR person, they don't take it seriously. Right. With the last question, I'd love to just for a bit here turn to the return slash impact trade-off. I'd love to hear your thoughts on to the extent you think there is one, you know, what is it? This is an often debated subject. I think unfortunately there's too much attention paid to this, but I often sit in the middle where I hear arguments from traditional finance folks who say that sustainable stocks or green stocks, if you will, are going to underperform certainly and here's the logic for why and then i you hear the flip side in which i think we're increasingly guilty of in the sustainability space is arguing that it will always lead to you know superior returns and uh, feel like i'm stuck in the middle where i i'm I'm desperately calling for a bit of balance in the two (laughs) uh, extremes i'm curious how you think about it yeah i think i'm in the in the middle with you david you know it's five years ago i was spending all my time justifying why you should do ESG and why it didn't harm returns and, in fact, could give you these greater insights. And if by not looking at ESG considerations, you didn't have the full picture. Now I caution a little bit about getting a bit carried away and, and some people almost imply that ESG is your sort of your solution to perpetual outperformance. And, of course, it can't be because all factors mean reversing. There's no such thing as a particular set of characteristics that will always outperform. So whether you label it ESG or sustainable or even impact in public markets, you have to look at it through the lens of what impact is having on the business model. And you can't ignore other other factors and influences. You have to look in, say, a growing sustainable thematic trend where in the value chain the value accrues and it can vary over different parts of the economic cycle or differences in different industries you have to look at the quality of business model people forget that the business model ultimately is going to be king and you can be very green or very socially conscious but if you have a bad business model or a bad product you can go bust if you're over leveraged and over financed if you ignore competitive changes or you you run fast and loose with a regulator. These things can't be seen in isolation. Sustainable or ESG alone is not a sufficient condition for outperformance. Now, 
over the long term, I think these factors can very significantly influence you know, the outcomes for companies, but they have to be taken in uh, alongside you know, the valuation you place on a stock, the governance and the management of a company and a whole myriad of other factors. So don't think that just a shiny label or a good score can be a sufficient condition. It never can be. And you should never abrogate your responsibility to understand the business model, the influence of external conditions, commodity prices, regulation, legislation, changing social norms. This is a complex business and to trivialize it down to just a single label, I think is it, it w- would be dangerous. So we always still have to remember to look in that broader context. Yeah, I think part of what we may be seeing here, you know, I'd be curious if you have a different opinion, is the outperformance that we're seeing, especially I think maybe in more recent years, may, the sustainability space may be just benefiting from a surge in demand as investors and kind of preferences have been changing. And that certainly, to the extent that's part of what's behind the outperformance and recent years and i know the performance can you can look at studies that date it much you know further back but to the extent that's happening now that isn't sustainable there will hit another kind of we'll get back to some sort of market equilibrium or the, that once that changes out of the way do you think that's at play yes I, I do worry a bit about that at the moment i look at some of my favorite companies in this space and let me have stopped them i've been investing in four or five years ago and I look at their underlying valuation characteristics, you know, something as basic as enterprise value to sales ratio. And it might have trebled in the last four or five mm. years. Now, that's fine if sales are accelerating, margins are expanding, or the combination of both. But if things are not really you know, changing dramatically, that's a big revaluation that's just predicated on lower interest rates and popularity. And so you just need to be a bit careful about that. Ultimately, in, you know, over the long term, you know, the business fundamentals and the valuation, the share price performance all have to marry up and come together. It, 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 we shouldn't just be buying the, the shiniest things because they tick a box. We still have to look, as I said, about quality of business model, valuation and all the other metrics that we would do as traditional investors. And just because it's green or socially responsible doesn't guarantee it it's going to perform well in the future. So I do think there is a little bit of excess momentum in some of these stocks. Most of them have got great fundamentals and what we would see as a valuation correction will be a great entry point. But you're right to say that we need to be careful about that sort of a herd mentality that drives stocks beyond their fundamentals, because that can be quite dangerous. I think of Solar World in Germany back in 2012, a leader in, in the solar industry, it went bust that year. Just because you're green doesn't mean you can't have a bad outcome. Yeah, said. With the last question, where do you see the where do you see the investment space in particular as it relates to values aligned investing, let's say 10 years from now? How do you see this sort of shaping out? Yeah, as I said, I think in 10 years' time, we will see ESG has disappeared because it becomes so much business as usual, so integrated into what we're doing. We don't reference it any more than we would 
cash flow, valuation, competitor analysis, you know, discount rates and all that sort of stuff. And, and that would be a great outcome. That's not to belittle ESG. That would be saying it's achieved its, its, proper, it, 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 its purpose. However, I do think there is something that we all need to focus on, and it is what I call beyond ESG. We have to recognise that there is a danger, particularly in passive forms of doing ESG and sustainability, and even if you're doing public market impact passively, I mean, they would definitely fall into this, is that we don't want to encourage status. One thing that I'm always talking about, sustainability is something we're seeking to achieve as a future state. It's not something we've achieved today. Because despite all this rise in the SDGs, ESG, sustainability, we're still in a net degenerative system. And we want to make sure that our enthusiasm for labels doesn't encourage the status quo. We want to make sure that we move from this degenerative to this regenerative system. And that's a big ask from here because none of us have got the solution to that. So we should all be thinking increasingly about how do we actually accelerate that change to a much more circular economy and then onto a regenerative economy, because if we want to achieve our climate ambitions, environmental health, biodiversity, if we want greater social participation in the economic story, then these are all things that are a journey and no amount of ESG labelling will actually solve it on its own. So it is about how do we actually foster you know, a regenerative system. I love that. Yeah, I think it's important. It feels t- to me there are a lot of this complex problems here that need to be solved to lead to if we're going to really achieve the aims of the SDGs and and an equitable world and impact investing and ESG and the capital markets alone aren't going to solve that. Part of it is comes down to much bigger conversation, which we won't get into here right now, but maybe in the future around capitalism itself and how do you fix it? Is it salvageable? How the economy works, as you said, moving to more of a regenerative um, economy. But All of that aside, getting started and doing what we can now with the system we have seems worthwhile (laughs) while we're trying to figure out some of these bigger, more complex issues. So I love that sentiment. Yeah, I I would say sustainability is no longer an option. It's an imperative. And the great thing about the rise of ESG and sustainability, I think a lot of it is not just that the investment community has found virtue, one might argue whether we have or not in some places, but mm-hmm. it's but that civil society increasingly cares. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the economy is a call on what society values, on what society is doing. And if we all want to achieve a sustainable system, we, there is a recognition that we are all in, in this together. And I do think that is part of the success of... ESG and sustainable and why it's, you know, to use a financial term, catching a bid is because there's increased evidence that, that society is beginning to care and be interested and value these issues. Yeah, well said. Listen, Andrew, I won't take more of your time. I really appreciate you coming in to, to share your thoughts and, and feedback. It's a really interesting conversation and maybe we'll have to have you on again sometime and we can dig into some of these other bigger issues. Yeah, they're certainly big and there's plenty to talk about. And as you might have spotted, I love talking about this topic. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. 
If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also, you can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, Hey Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.